Amen. Well, we just got done singing about the eternal God, forever Lord, the great I am. What a great song for us to sing as we move into the final chapter of the book of Daniel, which is all about our eternal God, our forever Lord, the great I am. And so I want to read for you this final chapter, chapter 12, which uh, I trust will conclude uh, this series this morning. And I hope that it's been a helpful series for all of us to go through this. But let's look at this uh, final chapter here, Daniel chapter 12. Daniel records, now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others were standing, one on this this bank of the river and the other on that bank of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? I heard the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven, and swore by him who lives forever, that it would be for a time, times, and a half a time, and as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. As for me, I heard but could not understand, so I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? He said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. But as for you, go your way to the end, Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Father, we thank you for the book of Daniel. And while there's much here, Lord, that's mysterious to us and hard to understand, Lord, I ask that this morning, once again, that we would not find ourselves fumbling around in the obscure, but just focusing on the obvious. And that our hearts would be um, equipped and um, inspired, Lord, with hope and with faith. uh, Because we know how this whole thing ends. This thing we called life, this this world we call the world, we, we know where it's headed. And Lord, we know that one day those of us who are in Christ will rise again and reign with Christ forever. I pray we'd see that today in this text and it would give us hope and encouragement, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at the outset of this final sermon in our series on the book of Daniel, I thought it would be helpful just to remind you of the title and the theme that uh, we gave this at the beginning of our study, just to, to summarize Daniel's message. We have our title, 
uh, here above us, and uh, this has been before us every week, our God reigns. That's really the book of Daniel in, in, in a statement. That's what the book of Daniel is all about, is our God reigns. And uh, Daniel was serving the king of heaven in a world of pawns, and so are you, and so am I. We, we all uh, serve the king of heaven in a world of pawns. And the theme is, this is how we summarize it, that Daniel's life and ministry was ordained by God to encourage his people, the people of Israel, during the Babylonian exile by assuring them that God was still in control. And so through the stories and the visions of Daniel, God revealed his sovereign plans for world history and the coming of the Messiah through whom he would fulfill his promises to the nation of Israel which provided them comfort and confidence while sojourning in a foreign land. And the general principle that we've seen throughout this book is that kings and kingdoms on earth will come and go, ultimately serving to advance the eternal purposes of the Most High God who has established His throne in heaven. And His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all those who honor and serve Him will reign with Him forever. And so the takeaway for us, uh, who are living here in the 21st century, is this, that while we wait for that glorious day to come, the, the second coming of Christ, we can trust that God's sovereignty is reigning over all things, even when it seems like our world or our lives are spinning out of control. And uh, even as recently as this week, we saw another historic event in our world with Great Britain leaving the um, European Union. Um, That has tremendous ramifications, not just financially and economically, but I also think eschatologically. When you think about the end times, this is just one more domino that has fallen uh, in in this domino effect that's going to happen as we get closer to the return of Christ. And I don't mean to know exactly the significance of that when it comes to the return of Christ, but when anything historic like that happens in our world, uh, in many ways we're seeing things historic happen in our own country with our presidential election that's coming up, Uh, unprecedented, we've never seen anything like it in our political parties, disintegrating the way they they have been doing. I mean, these these are all just signs, I believe, of the end times. And so essentially the message of Daniel is that, is that, hey, we can have faith and we can have hope in God's supreme power and sovereign control over all things. And instead of freaking out about what's going on in our country or freaking out about how this thing's going to affect us, what Great Britain's decision and, and, and everybody's now, I think it sounds like they're second guessing themselves now in, in Great Britain, right? Um, but, and people are being anxious and they're panicking and listen, there's no need to panic. Why? Because God is in control. And as the most high God, he knows exactly what he's doing. And so there's no need for us to be anxious or to lose hope. John MacArthur, in his uh, study guide years ago, he wrote this called The Future of Israel. He said this regarding this text we're about to look at. Quote, hope is what makes life meaningful. Without light at the end of the tunnel, a man will despair. He must be able to anticipate great things in the future, or he will find himself unable to enjoy life now. Hope is especially important to those who suffer. God knows that for a man to endure present stress, he must have hope in a better future. 
That's why throughout the Bible, God presents mankind a great and eternal hope for the future. It's a hope beyond all others, one that gives our present life full meaning. Hope is what we find at the end of the book of Daniel. In preceding chapters, the prophet received revelation of the disastrous future history of Israel. They reveal that the Gentile world powers of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome would dominate Israel, and they were correct. Israel has been savagely abused and slaughtered throughout its history, but on a note of hope, Daniel closes with the promise that Israel's oppression will end when their Messiah returns, end quote. Great summary of where we've been and what we're going to see this morning because chapter 12 really serves as the light at the end of the tunnel for the nation of Israel. Even though they would have to endure thousands of years of divine discipline for rebelling against God and rejecting Christ as their Messiah and accepting Satan's counterfeit uh, Messiah, the Antichrist, in his place, there still is a happy ending. And in Israel's darkest hour during the days of the great tribulation, when they'll be deceived and abused by the Antichrist, God will come to their rescue through the return of their true Messiah, Jesus Christ. And we see this at the very, in the very first verse of chapter 12. It says, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress just such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. In other words, that things are going to have to even get darker for the nation of Israel before the dawn. And it's always darkest before the dawn. And again, this is the, the third and final vision that Daniel had here that he's recording in chapters 10, 11, and 12. And again, forget about the chapter breaks. Chapters 10, 11, and 12 form a unit. Chapter 10 was the preface of the vision. Chapter 11 was the vision itself. And now chapter 12 is, is continuing on in the vision, but it's more of a postscript or a conclusion and just reminding you of this flow of thought here in Daniel chapter 10, uh, we see uh, Daniel explaining the setting and the subject of this vision. It was this vision of great conflict, chapter 10, verse 1. Um, in other words, there was going to be this warfare that would take place between Israel and, and the Gentile nations around her until she repents and, and finally uh, is granted peace at the return of the Prince of Peace. In chapter 11, Daniel was given a detailed revelation of the future suffering and chastising of the nation of Israel in order to prepare her for the coming of her Messiah. Uh, We learned last week that they would suffer through the Persian, Greek, and Roman empires, and they would continue to suffer all the way up through the time of the revived Roman Empire uh, and its ruler, the Antichrist. And we saw in chapter 11 how Gabriel, the messenger angel, revealed to Daniel both the the near and the distant future of of Israel. And again, we always have to keep that in mind when you're looking at biblical prophecy. There's always a near and a far fulfillment. It's like the mountain peaks, right? You see one mountain peak, that's the immediate fulfillment, the close fulfillment. Um, uh, And then there's the the far fulfillment. Uh, The future fulfillment is the mountain peak that's beyond that mountain peak. And so we see wars in the near future. We saw these things that have already happened in verses 1 through 35 of chapter 11. We saw the wars between Persia and Greece. Uh, And then we also saw the wars between Egypt and Syria. Um, 
again, the focus of Daniel's vision here was on this ongoing conflict between the northern uh, armies uh, above uh, Jerusalem in Assyria and the northern or the southern kings, so the southern kingdoms uh, down in the Egypt area. Uh, the two um, descendants, if you will, not descendants, but generals, uh, two of the four generals that uh, Alexander the Great's kingdom was divided up between the Seleucids and the, the Ptolemies. We talked about all that last week, a lot of historical detail there. But the point was, since the land of Israel was right between them, it served as the battleground for all the conflicts. And when you've got Assyria and Egypt coming together uh, to, to have a battle, well, there's a perfect place to have that battle, and that's the land of Israel. And so they were literally, Israel was literally caught in the crossfire and, and, and was fought over like a pawn, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then we saw finally last week the war of Antiochus Epiphanes on Israel. Again, this was the small horn of Daniel chapter 8. He's a, a, a type of Antichrist, and, and Antiochus Epiphanes is given more attention than all the other kings before him because of how his invasions affected the land of Israel, but I think more importantly, because he foreshadowed the Antichrist, who would desecrate and destroy the land of Israel just like he did. And so those were the, 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 the wars in the near future, um, which, by the way, have all come to pass. There's actual... Uh, history books that would substantiate the accuracy of Daniel chapter 11, all the way up till verse 35. But then there's a change there in verse uh, 36 where there's nothing in history that matches the rest of that chapter, which is a clear indication to me that the events recorded here have yet to be fulfilled. And so that's where we said we, we really have here the final war in the distant future. This is still to come. And we see the Antichrist described in verses 36 through 45. And we really just kind of sped through this section at the, at the conclusion of last week. And so I just want to kind of go back over this um, just briefly as we lead into this final chapter. I felt like I kind of left some, some important details out uh, we were just kind of flying through some stuff, and I know you felt like you were drinking out of a fire hose last week, and, and, um, and so not to get back into it uh, too much, but just to kind of uh, wrap up this final section, because it really leads us into chapter 12. And so just like we saw in chapter 8, Antiochus Epiphanes served as a bridge from the near to the far, since he was a type of Antichrist, he foreshadowed the real Antichrist. Uh, some believe that these remaining verses... Um, verses 36 through uh, 45 um, continue to uh, talk about Antiochus Epiphanes, but I think there's a couple of reasons why this is better understood as a reference to the Antichrist. Verse 35, for example, says this, um, because it is still to come at the appointed time. Okay, so we're talking about something uh, that's coming in the future. So the, the, verse 35 indicates that there's a shift to future events here. Again, as I already mentioned, um, everything in chapter verses 1 through 35 can be attested to from history, whereas you can't find anything uh, to describe uh, or, 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 or that's described here in verses 36 through 45 in any history book anywhere. Furthermore, I think uh, it makes sense because of all of Daniel's previous visions refer to the Antichrist, so it makes sense that this this final vision would follow the same pattern. 
And so again, notice verse 36, and the king will do as he pleases. Again, this king talking about the Antichrist, no, no longer referring to Antiochus Epiphanes, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper Excuse me. until the indignation is finished, for that which is his creed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all, but instead he will honor a god of fortresses, a God whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign God. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. Again, from previous passages we, we've already looked at, we know that the Antichrist will gain authority not by military conquest per se initially, but by consent of 10 kings who will submit and defer to him. We can look at Revelation chapter 17, verses 12 and 13, where he's, he's part of this coalition of nations and, they, and he rises to the surface and, 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 and the other nations defer to him. Uh, he will likely um, come to Israel's rescue in some um, matter that they're dealing with, some crisis, and they'll become loyal to him and will grant his, his loyal followers favors. Uh, this will gain him a, a large following. So uh, again, he will make a, a peace agreement with Israel during the first half of the tribulation. He's going to be their savior. And in some way, it's going to work out that he will be in a position where he can present himself as the savior of the nation of Israel. And so they'll embrace him as their Prince of Peace as their Messiah, if you will, this anti-Messiah, this anti-Christ. But at the midpoint, they'll make an agreement with him, but at the midpoint of that tribulation period, he will break that treaty and set himself up as king and magnify himself as God. And we know he'll, he'll, he'll do what's called the abomination of desolation. We've talked about that a number of times already. Well, he'll, he'll destroy um, he'll do everything he can to destroy, in his power to destroy Judaism and to destroy the sacrificial system. And he'll desecrate the temple and he'll set himself up as God. Notice it says in verse 37, he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers. Some conclude that that means that the Antichrist will be a Jew because um, this is how the Old Testament uses that phrase to refer to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. However, I would submit that, that this individual will be the final ruler in the revived Roman Empire, the little horn of the fourth beast, Daniel chapter 7, verse 8. So I think it's better to understand that he will be a Gentile. And so you say, what about this phrase? He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers. I think it's best to understand that is that he will arrogantly, he will be so arrogant, he will set aside all organized religion. He'll have no respect for his or anyone else's religious heritage, and he'll set himself up as the sole object of worship. He'll make his own religion, and it will be him. And many in the world will be persuaded. You say, well, man, why would anybody... Why won't they see through that arrogance? Why won't they see through uh, that? Well, they'll be persuaded to worship him as God because he will do miracles. And the false prophet, we learn about this in Revelation chapter 13. He'll have a, a PR agent, if you will, uh, called the false prophet, and he will uh, enable him to do all sorts of miracles. Um, even at one point being slain and appearing to come back to life to being resurrected. 
And you think that'll get the world's attention, especially if that's on CNN, that he's dead in the street and all of a sudden he rises from the dead? There's got to be something supernatural about this guy. We need to worship this guy. And so people will just be convinced that they need to worship him. And, and obviously, he will be empowered by Satan himself, who will use him as his pawn, even the Antichrist will be a pawn, uh, to attack the people of God's kingdom as part of a last-ditch effort on the part of Satan to thwart the plan of God and to prevent the return and the reign of Christ. And Satan is just going to be doing everything he can during that time to scramble and, and to somehow continue to thwart the plan of God. He's been trying to do that ever since he landed in the garden, right? And he'll be doing that even up to the end. And he will prosper until God's wrath against Israel is accomplished. He's done spanking them, disciplining them, right? And then the end will come. Look at verse 40. And at, that, at the end time, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships, and he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. He will also enter the beautiful land, that's Israel, and many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Again, this is all going down in the Middle East, guys. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries and the land of Egypt will not escape, but he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt and Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, that's Jerusalem, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. And so what's described here, I believe, is the final war on planet Earth. This is World War III, if you will, unless there's other ones in between we don't know about, right? But this would be World War III, where you've got these two world powers colliding in the Middle East against the Antichrist, seeking to overflow, over, overthrow him, and the southern power would be likely a, a, some kind of confederation of Arab nations based in Egypt, Ethiopia, Libya, Iran. The northern power could very well be Russia. Russia's getting into the act down there in the Middle East. Have you noticed that? Um, they, have, they have some vested interest there, and they're throwing their weight around in there, uh, over there. They, Russia was kind of minimized there for several years. You didn't hear much about Russia, right? It was kind of the sleeping bear, right? And uh, now it's kind of waking up, and, and it's interesting, but uh, Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 talk about Gog and Magog, which most um, prophetic um, scholars say is a reference to Russia. Well, here these two nations or, or world powers will come. They'll fail to overthrow the Antichrist. Uh, he'll use this as an excuse to retaliate and devour the lands surrounding Israel, and apparently he'll hear some reports, some rumors about some counterattack from the east, the north, maybe China, maybe Russia, we don't know. Um, he, he will retreat back to the land of Israel where he'll take his final stand in the Megiddo Valley where he will meet his end at the Battle of Armageddon, Megiddo. That's where the, that word Armageddon comes from. Uh, Megiddo is the a valley, a literal valley there that... Um, we were there just a, a couple years ago with a group of people from our church, and, and we, we, you climb up this uh, little fortress, and you sit there, and you look out over the, the, the valley of Megiddo, and it just, it, it's, it's spine-tingling. 
I mean, you get goosebumps. I get goosebumps right now just thinking about it, looking out there. And I told our people, I said, listen, get a good look, okay? We're on a reconnaissance mission right now because we're going to be here. You're going to be here someday, again, fighting in the, the battle of Armageddon. If you die and go to heaven, right? It talks about us coming back with, with the king of kings and the Lord of Lord, lords riding white horses. We're going to be here. This is where it's going down. The end of the world is going to happen right there where you're looking. I mean, it's just intense to actually see this place. And it's just this massive open space where you can totally see a, a world war uh, taking place. And so this is where uh, the battle will take place when Israel's true Messiah will return to earth and conquer this false Messiah. And Israel will be at its lowest point in history and be ready to be rescued by their Messiah because they'll know that this is not the true Messiah. They'll, they've been duped. And so when Christ comes, they'll be ready to finally accept him as the one who they pierce, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And, and as it says in Romans eleven twenty six, 26, all Israel will be saved. It doesn't mean every single Jew will be saved. It just means that the time of hardening it will be over. All the Gentiles will have been gathered in, and now it's time for the final Jews that God's ordained for salvation to be saved. And so you see the Antichrist here in this final war showcased in verses 36 through 45, but then in chapter 12, in the first four verses, we see the great tribulation, really the first three verses, the great tribulation. And again, Daniel, we know he's been concerned about the destiny of his people, and so he, he was praying and saying, Lord, what's going on here? Would you give me some insight into the future? And, 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 uh, and so Gabriel had come uh, to an, in answer to Daniel's prayer to reveal to him, to give him this revelation, um, this vision, to, to, to give him insight into the future of Israel. And, and so now what he does here, uh, not only has he given him this, this vision, which frankly was not very encouraging, basically you're gonna, your, your people are going to get hit from pillar to post until Jesus comes back. Um, that's, that was the vision. Um, so Gabriel goes on here to console him by revealing two facts. Number one is the intervention. The intervention in verse one. Now at that time, what time? The great tribulation. At the time of the end. The great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people. This is Michael, the archangel. The, the protector angel of Israel will arise and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be what? Rescued. Hope is on the way. In other words, yeah, it's going to be bad. The tribulation is going to be great. Unlike anything that has ever happened. I mean, this, is, this will be a time of unprecedented persecution for Israel. Matthew chapter 24, Matthew chapter 24, verse 21, says it this way, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. I mean, this is going to be the worst case scenario in the history of the world, particularly for the nation of Israel. And during the tribulation, I, I believe that Satan will try to exterminate 
every descendant of Abraham through the Antichrist. I mean, the Antichrist will be the greatest persecutor of Israel that they've ever known. I mean, he will make Hitler look like a schoolgirl. That's how defiant he will be and determined to, 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 to exterminate the Jews. This is going to be the ultimate holocaust. And while Jews have endured torture and death throughout their history, uh, they've never experienced a holocaust like the one that's going to come during the Great Tribulation. And again, this, this persecution will fulfill Jesus' prophecy about the Jews being, quote, this is what he said in Luke 21, 24, trampled underfoot by Gentiles until the times of Gentiles is fulfilled. That the Jews will be just trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of Gentiles are fulfilled. And this will bring an end when Christ returns and conquers the Antichrist. That will bring an end to the times of the Gentiles. In other words, the nation of Israel will never, ever again be under Gentile dominion. The Antichrist will be the last Gentile leader to occupy the land of Israel and oppress the people of Israel. Their divine discipline will be complete. It will also end the setting aside, again, and the partial hardening of the Jews. And as a result, as a result of the rejection of Christ, again, there was a partial hardening, a setting aside, as it says in Romans chapter 11, Verses 1 through 25, we should do a whole series on Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 now, right? To talk about that matter. But the, the, the hope here, the encouragement is, hey, it's going to get bad. In fact, it's going to get worse. It's going to be the worst it has ever been or ever will be. But guess what? Michael's coming, and he's going to rescue the nation of Israel. He'll stand in the gap. So he gives them hope with this idea of intervention. Secondly, he gives Daniel hope with the concept of resurrection. Look at verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others, the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, is the clearest Old Testament reference regarding the resurrection. Not the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but the resurrection, the fact that we, although we die, will rise again. In other words, that, that death is not the end of life. Death is not the end of our existence. That all of us will rise again. All of us will live forever. And this is the first time in the Old Testament, at least the clearest time in the Old Testament, where the concept of the resurrection uh, in the afterlife uh, is, is mentioned. That all of us will be raised to everlasting life, either everlasting life in heaven or everlasting life in hell. Now, quickly, and I don't want to get uh, off track here on a rabbit trail, but there's, 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 when you talk about the concept of resurrection, okay, and, and when you talk about it in the end times, okay, we're not just talking about when you die, you know, you go to heaven or hell. I'm talking about in the end times, this concept of resurrection, okay, is, is, is a, is a, a multi-pronged uh, process. There's, there, you could say there's, there's four actual resurrections. Okay, the first resurrection would be, of course, the rapture, right? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians 15, talk about uh, that Christ is going to come, 
uh, a trumpet will sound and Christ will come in the air and, and those who are in Christ will be raptured, right? Uh, those who are dead in Christ will rise from the dead and their bodies will be united with their souls and, and this is the next resurrection that we're looking for, the rapture of the church. And this will, this will wrap up the church age. This will be the rapture of the church on earth uh, at the time. And then the second resurrection, that will be the first resurrection, the second resurrection is at the return of of Christ, at the return of Christ, the actual return when he actually comes to earth um, to uh, fight against the Antichrist. And, and we see this um, in Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them. This is after Christ comes, and, 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 uh, and he, he puts the dragon, Satan, uh, in, the, in the pit for a thousand years, and he begins the millennial reign. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection over those over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God in Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And so I believe this is what, uh, this, this particular resurrection is what Daniel is referring to here. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. He's talking about the, the, the Jews who lose their lives at the hands of the Gentiles, um, in the many wars and conflicts described in this final vision in chapter 11 and at Christ's second coming, Jews who have embraced Jesus as their Messiah will be resurrected to everlasting life and to positions of honor and service in the millennial kingdom, particularly those who were martyred, if you will, beheaded during the time of tribulation for not worshiping the Antichrist, not taking the mark of the beast. But there's two groups of people here. Notice it says some to everlasting life, but to others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. What is that? Well, at the end of the millennial kingdom, unbelieving Jews, and I would say Gentiles as well, will be resurrected to shame and damnation. Uh, they will not experience the blessings of God uh, during the millennial kingdom. And of course, this is referred to as the great white throne judgment. And this is also in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from those from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their de deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it and the death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So this is the great white throne judgment. And by the way, the only people that go before the great white throne are those whose names are not written in the book of life. This is a, a really a resurrection of all unbelievers of all times, right? And they'll come before the Lord and they'll be punished for all eternity by being sent to hell. The great white throne judgment. So we, we see both of these talked about or implied, I think, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Um, the, the resurrection before, or at the beginning of the millennium, 
and then the resurrection after, at the end of the millennium. The first one for believers, uh, the second one for unbelievers. Notice what it says here in um, verse 3. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. We see this again in verse 10. Many will be purged, purified, refined, but the wicked will act wickedly and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. We see it also back in chapter 11, verse 33. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many. Uh, verse 35, again, some of them who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time. What is this talking about? I think these are Jews who have the wisdom to believe in Christ, to remain faithful to Him through the time of their nation's purging. And those who understand what's happening during the tribulation will be used by God to lead others to faith in Christ. We know that there's 144,000 witnesses. The book of Revelation talks about that who will specifically be evangelizing the nation of Israel during the time of tribulation. But they'll be used by God to lead others to faith in Christ and will be rewarded accordingly by radiating the glory of God for all eternity. I love the similar reference to us in, as believers in Philippians chapter 2, verse uh, 14. It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among, among whom you appear as lights in the world. This is talking about the witness that we should have as Christians. But then notice verse 4. We see uh, the focus now coming back to Daniel. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. So here we have the beginning of the end, the, the conclusion to this book. And so God's telling Daniel here to conceal and seal up this vision until the end of time. Now that doesn't mean that he wanted Daniel to keep what he saw and heard a secret or he wouldn't have had it preserved in the pages of Scripture for us to study today. I think the words here, as one commentator says, were to be sealed by the recording scribe, Daniel himself, as a faithful transcript of God's revealed truth, end quote. In other words, this was a trustworthy, validated revelation from God. It kind of had the stamp of approval. Sign, seal, sign it, seal it, and deliver it, Daniel. Let him know. It was a prophet of God, and this is, this is legit. Notice what he goes on to say here, verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold... Two others were standing, one on this bank of the river and the other on that bank of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be until the ends of these wonders? I heard the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, as he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, again, in an act of worship, and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. Of course, we've learned that that means three and a half years right? The, the, the halfway point of the tribulation. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. So Daniel here is recording 
a discussion, interesting here, a discussion between two other angels who apparently had accompanied Gabriel and were wondering how long it would be until the vision was fulfilled. That's like they're kind of hanging out going, they're, they're, they're listening in on the whole conversation. And they're, so they're like, like really intrigued by this. Like, hey, Gabriel, so like when is this going to happen? In other words, Daniel wasn't the only one who wanted greater insight into the future. Even the angels were interested in knowing how and when all this would take place. There's a very interesting passage in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 10. It says, as, this, as to this salvation, the prophets... In other words, regarding this plan of salvation, the God's plan of redemption... The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel and to you by the Holy Spirit, the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So even the prophets were kind of, you know, going, what's going on here? I realize this is not just talking about what's going on right now, but I I realize I'm serving someone in the future, and I'm not quite sure what it's all going to look like. And so even the prophets didn't understand completely what they were prophesying. But this is the amazing phrase. It says this, things... So I'm talking about announcing to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. It's like the angels are in heaven and you think, well, they're omniscient. They know everything. No, they're not. They're created beings. They don't know everything. They're created to worship and praise and glorify God. And so they're, they're pumped about God's plan of redemption, his plan of salvation. They got a front row seat and it's almost like they're, they're peering down, they're peeking down, kind of watching this. Check it out. Check that out. Whoa, they're they're checking this whole thing out. They're watching this plan of salvation go down, and they're eager. They they, they long to know what's going to happen. And so so here are these angels expressing that they didn't know, and so they're asking questions. They're they're intrigued. They're intuitive. Um, They're inquiring here. They're, They're longing to look into these things. They're amazed, and they're not just amazed. They're perplexed. I don't know about you, but that makes me feel a whole lot better. That I'm not the only one who's confused about all this stuff we've been trying to figure out here in the book of Daniel. Have you had a hard time putting your mind around all this? Well, guess what? You're not alone. Even the angels have a hard time putting their minds around this. Daniel didn't fully comprehend this. The angels didn't even fully comprehend all the details of the prophecies revealed in the book of Daniel. And not until history began to unfold were others like us able to understand some of these prophetic revelations and and see the significance of all that is in this book? But even then, even now, we don't fully understand all that's here, and we may not even see these things happen in our lifetime. But like Daniel and his generation, we can be comforted. We can be assured by the fact that God has a definite plan, a definite timetable for how he will wrap up his program for Israel, his plan of redemption for the church, and how the world as we know it will end. And guess what? We'll be there. We'll be there. 
But it all happens. Why? Because if we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we will be resurrected just like Daniel. That's what Jesus said. You remember in John chapter 11, when Jesus was bringing Lazarus back to life, in John chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus said. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. So again, the Antichrist will reign for these seven years. The first half of his reign will be relatively peaceful compared to the second half. Israel will be enjoying the benefits of the covenant. He will make with them, but then the Antichrist will break the covenant in the middle of the 70th week, this three and a half times, times and half a time. And that's when we get down further, these numbers. You're wondering about these numbers. As for me, I heard, this is verse 8, but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? Because Daniel's like sitting there going, I, I still don't understand. Some of you are still sitting there this morning after all these weeks. I still don't understand. That's okay, you're in good company, okay? You and Daniel, all right, you're right there. I still don't understand. Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days, basically three and a half years. Perhaps the abomination of desolation will... Uh, occur 30 days before the Great Tribulation actually starts, which could explain the 1,290 days, because 1,260 days is really three and a half years. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. That's, I think, the second half of the Tribulation. Um, So you say, well, what about these extra 45 days, if you're doing the math there? Um, well, that may be the time between when Christ actually returns and, and destroys the Antichrist and defeats him at the Battle of Armageddon until he actually sets up his throne in Jerusalem. That may be the extra days. We don't know for sure. But again, look at verse 13. Let's stick with the, let's leave, let, let's, let's not fixate on the obscure. Let's focus on the obvious, notice verse 13, but as for you, go your way to the end. He's talking to Daniel. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. In other words, hey, Daniel, buddy, I realize you don't understand it all, okay? You're just my mouthpiece, you're writing this stuff down for me, and this is going to be passed on to future generations, not only of believers in Christ in the church, but also to the Israelites who are living during the time of the tribulation. They're going to want this book. They're going to need this book. This is going to give them hope. This is going to give them help. Don't sweat it, Daniel. I know you, you can't understand it all. You did your job. Now just continue on in your life. Rest in peace and know that I'm going to raise you back to life. What a, what a cool consolation here. He's told to seal this thing up, keep it intact, so they would be available for future generations like us to study and benefit from, particularly the tribulation saints. But ultimately, he says, go your way. He said in verse 9, go your way. He says it again in verse 13, go your way. Essentially, he's just saying, hey, carry on to the end of your life. Don't let these visions of the future scare you, hinder you, 
uh, trip you up, if you will, in your walk with the Lord today. Uh, this is a good reminder for us. Listen, for us, what is the application? Well, what did Jesus say in Luke 19, 13? This is a parable we're not going to look at, but this is a parable of some servants, some 10 servants, and he gave uh, the landowner, went away on a trip, and he gave him uh, 10 slaves money, and he said, occupy till I come. Do business until I come back, essentially. In other words, don't worry about where I went or what I'm doing or when I'm going to come back. You be faithful to do business with this money. Be a good steward, right? And, and I'll come back when I come back. And if you are faithful as a good steward, you'll be ready. And you don't have to worry about it. I think whenever Christians study prophecy, like we've been doing here, I think we just need to be careful. Um, and, and maybe this is why I haven't really emphasized end times prophecy so much in my tenure here at Lakeside Bible Church. I haven't made it a big deal. Prophecy is not a hobby horse of mine or a hot button of mine where I'm just constantly talking about, you know, prophecy and eschatology and why is that? Well, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, which by the way, next to Daniel and Revelation and the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, 25. If you want to know anything about the end times, First and Second Thessalonians have a lot of helpful information about, about eschatology. And so in the, in, the, in the context of teaching on the end times and what's going to happen, how, how and when will Christ return, this is what Paul exhorted some of the Thessalonians here. First, Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. If you do a little more uh, homework in in, in First and Second Thessalonians, you realize what had happened is that the Christians in Thessalonica had gotten so caught up into prophecy, they were so into prophecy, that they actually quit their jobs to wait for Jesus to come back. I mean, they literally quit their jobs, and they got up on their roofs, and they sat there waiting for Jesus to come back. I mean, you can get, you can get so wrapped around the axle about end times prophecy that you lose focus in life. And basically what Paul had to tell him is, hey, get back to work, get off your roof, get back to work, eat your own bread, stop becoming a burden to everyone else. The point is, it's possible to become so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Have you heard that expression before? And so I think that's essentially what Gabriel was telling Daniel here was, Daniel, just just don't sweat it, man. Just just go your way and uh, just know that uh, you won't maybe see any of these things fulfilled in your lifetime, but you can rest in peace knowing that you will be resurrected someday in the end and enjoy your inheritance, namely the millennial blessings with his Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the allotted portion at the end of the age. He will be there, Daniel will be there, reigning with Christ and us in the millennial kingdom. How cool is that? 
So as the curtain closes here on the book of Daniel, we're left with many images lingering in our minds, giant statues, fiery furnaces, lion's dens, visions of beasts and goats and horns and angels and you name it, right? But the greatest image that should be in the forefront of our minds is that of our all-powerful God sitting on his throne in heaven, sovereignly reigning over all things. That's the picture. I hope you don't walk away thinking about this horn, some unigoat, you know? That's all I think about Daniel is a unigoat I learned about. Forget about the unigoat. Think about God sitting on his throne. Our God reigns, amen? That's the point of the book. And should, that should cause us to look at the future with the kind of hope and faith that God revealed to Daniel and, and really modeled through Daniel. And that's really, Daniel is all about having hope and faith and confidence in God's omnipotent sovereignty that reigns over all things. How many of you guys have heard of Handel's Messiah? Anybody know Handel's Messiah? Okay, good, good number of you guys know Handel's Messiah. Every Christmas, right? That's when we hear it. Churches, concert halls around the world, millions of people love that song. They find hope, they find faith in the message of that song. It's become one of the most beloved compositions of all times, George Frederick Handel's Messiah. Now, you may not know the story behind the writing of this piece, and I just want to share it with you quickly as we close the book of Daniel, because I think it's the, 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 the natural uh, application of, of this book. Um, Handel was in despair. Uh, he was struggling to earn a living in London. He knew days when he could not even afford to buy anything to eat. One night back in 1741, he was depressed. He was defeated. He, he wandered the lonely streets of London. It was almost dawn when he returned to his shabby home. And on the table was a thick envelope. And it was from Charles Jennings. He was the man who wrote the text for his compositions. And examining the, the, the pages... Uh, he found them covered with texts of Scripture, just Scripture everywhere. And he, he was just tired, and so he just kind of tossed the pages aside. He crawled into bed, but he couldn't sleep because the words that he had read kept resonating in his heart and mind. And these were the words, quote, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. For unto us a child is born. Glory to God in the highest. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Well, he was stirred from his sleep. He, he got up, he went to the piano, and, and as his testimony says, that, that the music just flowed from his heart, rich and majestic and triumphant. Chris, you ever had a time like that? Just, just coming, man. It's just flowing for you, man, when you're writing music, right? And, and he just began to write, and night and day for three weeks, he wrote feverishly. He forgot sleep, food, rest. He refused to see anyway. Finally, on the last day, when he finished the work, one of his friends managed to gain entrance into his house, and the composer, he said, he found him at the piano. Sheets of music just strewn all around him, tears streaming down his face, and he said this, quote, I do believe I have seen all of heaven before me and the great God himself. And we know the result of his labor is this dramatic commentary, really, on the prophecy and fulfillment of God's redemption of man through the person and work of his son. 
And it really consists of, of three parts. There's, there's the prophecy and coming of the Messiah. There's the redemption of mankind. There's the thanksgiving for the ultimate the defeat of, 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 of death through faith in the kingdom of God. And, of course, the most famous section is the hallelujah chorus, which hallelujah means what? Praise the Lord. Praise God. Hallel. Praise Yah, Yahweh. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise God. Um, which concludes... The second of the three parts, but this is, these are the passages that the, that, that the Hallelujah Course is based on from Revelation. Revelation 19.6, and I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Revelation 19.16, and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Revelation 11.15, and the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, if you've ever been in a church or a concert hall when this piece is played, what have you done? Huh? Huh? You've stood up. Why? Whenever that hallelujah chorus part happens, everybody just automatically, instinctively stands up. Well, tradition has it that when the first notes of that triumphant chorus rang out, King George II, who was in the audience when, it was, when Handel first played this thing, he stood to his feet. He rose to his feet. And royal protocol was when the king stood, what? Everybody else stood. So they were like, the king's standing. Let's go. So everybody stood up to mimic the king, to honor the king. And that initiated a tradition that has lasted more than two centuries. Now, some would like to argue the exact reason why the king stood up. Some assumed he was maybe just moved by the performance, and so he stood. Others said that he had a problem with gout, and he was, his legs were sore and he wanted to stand up and stretch his legs. That's what some would suggest. I would like to believe that King George himself was simply following royal protocol by standing in the presence of the king as a sign of respect. Say, wait a minute, he was the king. But he knew when he heard the hallelujah chorus exalting Jesus Christ as the king of kings, In standing, King George was acknowledging that he too was subject to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And if King George was subject, right, an actual human king, how much more are we? So what I want you to do is I want you to stand. And we're going to honor the Lord. And I'm not going to make you sing the Hallelujah Chorus because you're like, I don't know it. Go ahead, stand up. Come on. And this is standing up in honor of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we're going to listen to this majestic refrain. And if you know it, feel free to sing. If not, just listen. And then when it's over, um, we will pray. But just think of everything we've learned in the book of Daniel. And this is the application, all right?
Father, that's our heart cry as well. Hallelujah. Praise to you. As we've just looked through this book over the last few months and just waded through a lot of challenging uh, information, but Lord, at the end of the, the day, we know ultimately it's simply a reminder that you reign and that you are omnipotent, you're all-powerful, and your majesty is, is above all other majesty that you um, raise up kings and you put down kings, you raise up presidents, you put down presidents, and it's all to accomplish your eternal plans. And Lord, we know that one day you will reign forever and ever through your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that they would want to be a part of this amazing plan of redemption, that they wouldn't want to be those that are left out um, of all this blessing, uh, that they would have to spend eternity in hell uh, because they rejected Christ. I pray that you would soften their heart and make them want to uh, just come to you as the great God and King of the universe and the God and King of their life. And Lord, as we go through our days here on this earth, um, we'll all face different trials and tribulations, and I pray that we would see them as insignificant compared to the awesomeness, the greatness of you. Uh, You're way bigger than any of our problems, and uh, that we would uh, just remember um, that you reign over all things, and uh, all things are being accomplished for your glory and honor. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.